if you're not storing and collecting data in the first place, then there's no way that that can be breached or hacked or whatever. It's just a safer way to do business. And that data is not needed, especially when we're talking about website analytics. That data is not needed. Like we've been running a, a privacy focused company and it hasn't hurt our business. It hasn't impeded our ability to grow as a company or, or anything negative. Last summer, I really started thinking about values. What values do I have that I want to make sure I'm building into the DNA of my business? And when it came right down to it, I realized that my core value, the one I wanted to make sure lived in every essence of my business, was safety. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. Most of my work with clients is intimate. Money is a touchy, uncomfortable subject for most of us, especially when we're talking in specific numbers. I've had people tell me they'd rather be naked in front of a stranger than show them their business books. And there's so much shame and guilt and inadequacy for most of us when it comes to handling our finances. Letting someone into that requires vulnerability. Talking about what's not working behind the scenes in your business requires you to admit that everything isn't perfect. And in an Instagram world where we're expected to project that we're all fabulously okay every day, that's just uncomfortable. I think that's probably one of my favorite silver linings to come out of all of the crap that was 2020, that it's starting to be okay to admit that we're not all okay. But the point here, is that the work I do with clients requires trust and vulnerability. And that can't happen if they don't feel safe, both in the real physical world and psychologically safe. So if I want to build a company with the core value of safety, how do I actually go about doing that? Now, you may or may not know this about me, but both my undergrad and my first master's degrees are actually in criminal justice. And I started my career out as an Air Force Security Forces officer, and then later served as one of the senior anti-terrorism advisors to a base commander when I was a civilian. And it's been quite a while since I've used those degrees professionally, but the training and the awareness of safety, of security, is something that I honestly just can't turn off. It's something that's always running in the back of my mind. And during my work as an anti-terrorism advisor, we focused on prevention, making sure that troops didn't accidentally make themselves target. And we tried to help them keep themselves safe by encouraging awareness of the risks. So thinking about safety from a security perspective feels pretty logical to me. And so part of creating a safe environment means creating a secure environment for all of the data and the information that I handle. I work with financial data, bank accounts, and confidential business plans. And the bare minimum level of safety for my clients is to feel confident that I can keep that information secure. Now, at the same time I was thinking about all of this, I was also starting to really think about all of our personal data that lives out on the internet. This was happening at about the same time that the Stop Hate for Profit campaign was gaining ground, which is a campaign to convince social media companies to take more action to moderate online hate groups and hate speech. And we were also talking about TikTok being banned because of privacy concerns. I was starting to get more curious and concerned about how my own data was being used and tracked by Facebook, Google, 
Amazon, and I was getting a lot less comfortable with using social media to grow my own business. I even did an episode with Nancy Jane Smith and Bonnie Gillespie back in September. It's episode 48 if you want to go check it out. Exploring this idea of how to ethically use social media, or if you even needed to use social media in your business. So all of this kind of led up to me asking the question, if I were to market and operate my business with a deep respect for individual data privacy as the first step towards building safety and security into the DNA of ScaleSpark, what does that actually look like? So I embarked on this experiment in privacy-focused marketing and data security. And for the last seven months or so, that's been a big part of every marketing and operational decision that I've made. And I wanted to share my journey with you. So this month, we're talking all about privacy and security. It'll be part behind the scenes with me sharing some of the actual steps I've taken and how I thought through these decisions for myself, and also interviews with some of the experts that helped me educate myself along the way. I'm kicking off the theme where I kicked off my experiment with removing Google Analytics from my website and replacing it with a tool called Fathom. Fathom is a really simple, lightweight, privacy-first alternative to Google Analytics. And I started here because honestly, it was the easiest step for me. It took about 10 minutes. I removed the Google Analytics tracking code, replaced it with the Fathom code, and bam, no more personal tracking on my website. As an added bonus, because of the way Fathom does tracking, I could also take the cookie notice down from my website because I wasn't invading anyone's digital privacy anymore, so I didn't need to notify them that I was. So one last pop-up to have to deal with. Throughout this experiment and my research into data privacy, the Fathom blog has also been a fantastic resource to explain the often complex world of digital privacy in a really human way. My guest today is one of the founders of Fathom, Paul Jarvis, and Paul and his co-founder Jack Ellis are two of my go-to experts on both digital privacy and on the logistics of how to build that ethos into the DNA of your company. It's a core value for them as well, so they have to navigate the balance of promoting, marketing, and growing a company while still staying true to keeping data secure and also being respectful of people's individual data and being transparent about what they're doing. Paul and I talk about why you should care about digital privacy, even if you have nothing to hide. And we talk about how to balance the marketing and promotion needs of a growing company while still keeping everybody's data private. Hey, Paul, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show, Susan. So Fathom is a privacy-focused company, but a lot of my audience isn't necessarily familiar with kind of what that means. So what does being privacy-focused as a company mean to you? Yeah, so I guess the long and short of our business model is selling software and not selling data. And I guess I'll start there because a lot of the software that we use on the internet, like social media or, or even things like Google Analytics, are free because their business model isn't charging customers money for that software. It's making money off of people in other ways. So we charge a fair price for our software, meaning we don't need to sell data. We don't need to collect data. Um, it, it's basically, it's, I think it's a more upfront business model. We, we have fair price software that people pay us to use. Um, we also don't show any personal information about visitors for um, the analytics software that we provide, right? So 
you can see information about your website without learning a ton about the actual individuals who are visiting your site, which I think is kind of invasive. And I guess the last point about being privacy focused is that we comply with privacy laws. And I think privacy laws are actually a good thing, even though they can get a little in the weeds. So things like GDPR, CPPA, PECR, um, all of the, I guess, four letter acronym privacy <laughs> laws our software complies with because we don't show personal data in our software. Yeah, I guess that's that, that's all the things that, that privacy <laughs> focus means. Yeah, basically, uh, the, the way I always like to think about it is if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Exactly. And at least for me, so uh, one, of, one of the things I did at ScaleSpark this year was try and kind of embark on this it, I guess, attempt to see if it's possible to grow and market a business without uh, still being respectful of privacy and the privacy of my clients and the people that work with me. And Fathom was the the easiest part of that to implement <laughs> was just to kill Google Analytics and install Fathom. Um, but the kind of the idea around digital privacy and paying attention to who has our information, paying attention to what they're doing with that information um, was an important part of what I was trying to accomplish with my business. But why do you think we should care about digital privacy? Why, why should we care what people are doing with our data? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I think it's it's really important. And even if you look at the the news, right, like the company Cambridge Analytica shut down because they wouldn't release the data of a single person. Like that's how important invading people's privacy was <laughs> to them. <laughs> so I think it, if your listeners are new to digital privacy um, or if they think, oh, maybe this doesn't matter, maybe, and this is kind of the common thing, right? Maybe, maybe you think if you're listening, well, I have nothing to hide right? Because you're a law-abiding, wonderful citizen of the internet. I can certainly understand the reasoning of if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't have anything to hide. But that logic can be uninformed and it can actually be dangerous. So research have, researchers have coined this term called social cooling, um, kind of like the opposite of global warming, but relating to how we act as human beings to describe what happens when we feel like we're constantly being watched, right? Like even if, we, even if we're doing nothing wrong, there's a change in our behavior that happens when there's just vast amounts of data being collected about us at all times. So how social cooling works is that since all of our data is constantly being watched and collected and mined and stored and turned into scores and data points and targeted ads, it, it makes us change, right? Because we don't want um, those things to impact us. We know that if we say something wrong, say on social media, that we could get fired or, or something worse. And so all of this data kind of that's collected about us creates this sort of digital reputation, right? That could potentially limit our opportunities in life and work and social situations. Um, and even things like if you return goods to a store, you're at higher risk of being considered a fraudster, right? So all of this data is being collected at all times and that could affect things like applying for a loan in the future. And so because we know that we're being graded and judged, um, it, it changes how we interact and what we do and what we say. And this creates pressure to not have 
um, opinions that rock the boat or, or dissent. And it breeds this kind of culture of conformity where we're less likely to take risks. We're less likely to think outside the box. We're kind of just... It, it makes it so we act different. It's just like people on the show The Bachelor, right? Like they're not acting <laughs> like real human beings. They're acting like people who know that they're on camera. So and thinking about digital privacy means that we don't want all of this data collected about us and and, and socially cool how we act um, it, on the internet, right? So saying that we have nothing to hide, and this is like such a soapbox for me, <laughs> but like saying that we have nothing to hide, it can also be a bit of a privileged statement um, and view as well, because a lot of us who who feel that way are lucky enough to live in like democratic countries. And so in, in other countries, and this is kind of data that corporations get data that Um, governments get that, that corporations get that, that they then sell to governments. So uh, minorities need privacy in in some countries to shield themselves from social and government repercussions, right? So people with different sexual orientations, religious minorities, even people who just question political leaders where it's illegal to do that need safety and and, and digital privacy. And without privacy, um, nefarious governments or corporations could basically round up everyone who feels a certain way or votes a certain way or talks about things a certain way and and do lasting damage to them. So I think for for all of those reasons and more, that's why digital privacy is important, even if you're um, just a a normal law-abiding internet human being. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's, it's interesting that you bring up kind of the the safety issue because um, that's actually what led me to uh, focus on privacy marketing was mm. uh, this idea that one of my core values, because I deal with a lot of financial stuff, uh, was that people needed to be able to trust me and yeah. that trust needed to be held and cherished and one of the ways that i wanted to respect that was um, respecting their digital privacy and not tracking what they did on the website or what they were doing um and so it's interesting that you bring that up because that was actually the trigger for for me to kind of head down this path was um wanting people to feel safe when they were dealing with me interesting and that's really valid too right and i think <laughs> i think the point of data existing on the internet isn't a matter of like oh if it could be hacked or if it could be released it's it's almost a matter of when right like there's mm-hmm. so many da- if you punch your email address into services like have i been pwned um then you can see <laughs> like if i punch my email address in there now that email address is associated with i think 237 breaches mm-hmm. of data so I think if you're not storing and collecting data in the first place, then there's no way that that can be breached or hacked or whatever. It's just it's it's way safer. It's just a safer way to to do business. And that data is not needed, especially when we're talking about website analytics. That data is not needed. Like we've been running a, a privacy focused company and, and using uh, Fathom for for years now. Right. And it hasn't hurt our business. We talk about marketing. I know you want to. <laughs> but that hasn't hurt our business. It hasn't impeded our ability to grow as a company or, or anything negative. We know everything we need to know about our website. We just don't know the things that aren't useful to us about the people who are visiting it. And same with all our customers that use Fathom as well. It's the same thing. Yeah, I have I have no need to know who is hitting my content, but I do 
like being able to tell what content is more popular, where are people showing up, what what is drawing people in, and that's valuable information and it's actionable. I mean, I'm a I'm a data geek. I love data, but only data that you could actually do something with. And knowing the individual person um, isn't something I, I I want to know or want to act on necessarily. Yeah. And that's kind of the thesis of Fathom is that the data and aggregate. Um, in this case, can be just as useful. It's like if you post this interview with me on your website and see that it becomes the most popular page on your site, then you'll have more nerds like me on your show, and you can use that, <laughs> and that helps the, that helps the podcast and every <laughs> and everything else. So, I will say my my top episode um, is super nerdy. Nice <laughs> project management. Um, nerd out on ClickUp versus Notion. So super <laughs> nerdy, um, and people love that. Okay, so let's talk about kind of the the marketing aspect of this that I think comes up for most business owners, which is that, you know, being our kind of common wisdom is that you need to be tracking people and personalizing information and active on social media to be able to grow your business. And, you know, you and Jack still needed to promote and grow Fathom, but pretty much all the organic tools you have at your disposal have tracking included in them and they sell data that's built into their business model. So talk to me a little bit about how you decided to promote or advertise Fathom when you were kind of balancing the need to grow your business, but you didn't want to compromise your privacy first values. For sure. And that's a great question because the way that we run Fathom isn't just like privacy isn't just a marketing gimmick that we have. Privacy is baked into every single thing we do, every decision we make um, since, since day one. Right. And we have grown about 600% this year alone. Um, in case anybody didn't know through a pandemic. <laughs> so things, things have definitely been going well. And we've done things um, like never buying targeted ads. Right. So I'll, I'll walk you through, I guess, probably the, the five things that, that we do as a privacy focused company that still markets our product effectively, grows our business um, and, and gets our name out in front of people like I'm not. So actually, let me ask you a question. How did you find out about Fathom? Um, I think through your newsletter. OK, like it's it's been yeah. a while. Yeah, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was through your newsletter. Okay, that's awesome. And so people do, people are able to find us because we do things like, um, well, the newsletter that I used to have, Sunday Dispatches, <laughs> um, which was just my personal newsletter, didn't wasn't really Fathom related, but that was one kind of distribution method that I had. Um, another thing is our podcast, uh, Above Board. Um, and we don't have sponsors of the show because our company is a sponsor, right? And so we and it, it, the show is really just Jack and I nerding out about what it takes to run a business. Um, the other thing we do is have uh, our blog on our website where we write articles both about our software and just about privacy and um, dealing with uh, having a software company like the article. I think our most popular article was Jack's article about our company being attacked. Um, with the DDoS attack. We also have our Twitter account. So we are actually active on Twitter. Jack handles the, the Twitter account. Um, and it's not just pitching either. Like it, it, it's not just us using social to tell people about Fathom. 
it's us interacting and engaging with um, a, a greater community who are interested in, in software and privacy. We're also constantly releasing features, right? So every time we release a feature, we talk about it on the blog, we put it on Twitter, we write an article about it, and that gives us something to talk about. And it also gives um, our customers something to talk about and our audience something to talk about and our affiliates, which I guess is the one, the, the fifth or sixth, fifth, I think, <laughs> thing is that we our affiliate program has been a great way to grow our business and we pay 25% commissions for life. So if an affiliate refers a customer and that customer sticks around for five years, we pay the affiliate 25% of their bill for five years. If they stick around forever, then forever. And the final thing um, is word of mouth. And that's not just a pass. And I think this is where a lot of people get it wrong. Word of mouth um, and, and reputation isn't a passive thing. It's very much something you need to actively work on. So for us, it's having the best software on the market that's easy to use, makes sense, simple, you just get it. If you look at if you look at the demo, you just get it. Um, the the second part of that is making sure that we're keeping our customers happy. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time on support, and support is me and Jack. Like the the two. Con- if you email support, you're going to get a co-founder <laughs> <laughs> replying, and we try to reply as as, as quickly as possible. Um, and so. All of these things we try to do because it helps with word of mouth and it helps reduce churn. And I think that there was some study done where it costs five times more to get a new customer than to keep an existing customer. And because we're in a subscription business, it it saves us so much money and time to just make sure that the people who are already paying for us are happy. So we do focus on acquisition, but we really, really focus on retention. And so all of those things are what's led us to um, some really good organic growth through um, the last couple of years. This year especially, um, it's been a tough year and it, we've still managed to, to grow the business um, pretty steadily. You forgot about the cats, <laughs> which yes. I really appreciate that they have names now. I'm just, I'm just saying. I like cat names. <laughs> that's part of that's part of having a, a brand that has uniqueness, right? So people people remember the cats. We have um, all over print cat hoodies that people treat, and we don't even sell those. But we've, uh, I mean, I have one. Jack has one, and a couple people have got them. But people want those things, and people yeah. talk to us about them. People remember the photos that we posted of these these silly cat hoodies. Um, on the internet and it's part of just building a, a memorable brand and Jack and I like to have fun and so we don't the reason we run our business is because we can just be real people running a business we don't there's no legal team that we have to run ideas past <laughs> <laughs> we can just be normal human beings in how we connect with others and and it works and it helps so you all did something I think is pretty interesting so when you decided to kind of start making YouTube videos um, you had a really interesting episode of Above Board where you talked about it, but um, can you talk talk me through kind of the decision process that you went through to decide that YouTube was viable and how you were gonna balance the fact that YouTube tracks everybody and there's no way to avoid that mm-hmm. um, and balancing, respecting the privacy of your users and people that wanna watch the videos. For sure. And I mean, YouTube's part of Google and Google is, I guess, our, our marketing nemesis. 
<laughs> so the, so the, the kind of the thought process we had was one, we wanted to make videos um, both in terms of uh, like technical support videos. Like if I can walk somebody through um, doing something in Fathom and they can see my screen and see what I'm clicking on and see what I'm typing, fastest way to teach anybody how to use something on the internet. Like I'm, I've taught courses for years. I 100% know and get this. And the other side of it is videos are fun. Both Jack and I have um, like to like to do things like that. And YouTube is a place where people go to watch videos, like it or not, right? So like we could put our videos on Vimeo, nobody would find them. And it wouldn't be a marketing channel because the only people that would find the videos if we put them anywhere other than YouTube was people who are already on our website, right? So we wanted to use videos as a channel for um, brand awareness and and getting new people. YouTube's the only place to do it, whether or not you like them. So what we did, and, and I guess at the same time, we were like, well, we don't like um, Facebook having, um, collecting all of this data that tracks you across the internet. So we made these, um, I guess, kind of landing pages. So if we link to a YouTube video from our Twitter, from our website, from anywhere, it doesn't go straight to YouTube. It goes to a landing page on our site, which then connects to YouTube and it strips all of the personal data. So all YouTube can do is track you on YouTube, which isn't actually like tracking somebody in a thing that they're using is far less evil than tracking somebody across the entire internet. Right. So we made these pages and we're always trying to think of things like this where, okay, we, we do care about privacy and privacy is, is our top priority, but we also exist in the real world where YouTube's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and YouTube <laughs> is the place where people go to find videos, not just watch videos. So that's kind of what we did where, yeah, you're still using YouTube, but if you're using YouTube anyways, then you're already on their platform. But we didn't want to give YouTube additional information about people we were sending their way. So we made these landing pages um, instead. And that feels like um, a good way and a good balance to um, share YouTube videos and get discovered on YouTube, but also try to do what we can on our end to protect uh, the privacy uh, of people who want to watch our videos. Yeah, I love the idea that, you know, you guys you still exist in the real world and you still exist in the world of the internet that is controlled by, you know, pretty big companies that it's really <laughs> hard to work around. Um, it's hard to find alternatives to a lot of these services like YouTube. There, mm -hmm. there isn't an, there, there isn't a, a fathom version of YouTube. Exactly. And not one that has the, the, the hundreds of millions or billions of users too. Right. So, yep. Yeah, it's 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 part of balancing like we don't want to be so private that it doesn't make sense in the real world. But anything we can do to be more private that keeps things actually usable and doable and not something that you have to go to like the terminal command line to type in some code. Like we just want to make things easy. <laughs> so if we can make the easy thing as as private as possible, then we're all for it. Hey there, it's Susan. If you've been listening to this interview and it's making you think about some of these issues and ideas, and you wish you could talk to some other real live business owners about it, I wanted to invite you to my free monthly roundtable, Dollars and Decisions. 
Once a month, I get together live with a group of amazing business owners just like you to geek out on money and operations and workflow and software, all that stuff that you hear me talk about here. The Roundtable is kind of like a live interactive version of the podcast, so I would love to have you join me. To sign up for the next roundtable, head to scalespark.co slash dollars and decisions, no spaces, no hyphens, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. So Fathom, you guys recently survived a DDoS attack, which is basically like a spam attack on your service, where they overwhelm (laughs) your servers with a bunch of traffic. Yeah. Um, And you and Jack run a very small company, Pretty much just the two of you. <laughs> it is just Jack and I, yeah. So there's not a lot of surge capacity to handle something like that. So can you talk me through a little bit about how you all handled the attack and how you decided to move forward to give yourselves that capacity to surge without scaling up the size of your company? Yeah, and, and both Jack and I are kind of on the same page with running a small and lean company. I mean, I, I wrote a whole book called Company of One that talks about the, the methodology of, of running a, a small company that questions growth. But it also doesn't mean that we're against growth. And, and kind of what I mean by that in this situation is that because the company is just Jack and I, neither of us want to be on call to handle server spikes. We run a serverless business. So all of our all of our servers are sorry all of our software runs on AWS, which is basically that powers almost the entire internet from Amazon. Right. <laughs> and so our servers scale as needed. So um, I think it was two months ago, one of our customers was getting ten million page views a a week or something like that, and our servers just kind of scale up. And as as it's needed, they just grow and, and then shrink back down. So it doesn't. We don't have to spend time on on the server administration side because Jack is an amazing programmer, but doesn't want to deal with servers. It's kind of a different skill set which he can do, but he'd rather not. And I don't blame him. Dealing with servers is annoying. Um, so all of our stuff runs on enterprise level architecture as as far as the actual computers that power our software, which is good because, like I said, it scales. But it's also bad because when somebody, it's really hard to hack companies nowadays unless they do stupid things like save all of their passwords in a plain text file on their server. But it's really easy to just send gobs of traffic at a server to try to bring it down, which is what a targeted DDoS attack is, is just sending as much traffic and volume at a server as possible in hopes that it'll take it down. And so because, like I said, ours scale as needed, ours just kept scaling up as the attack ramped up, which is good because it kept our customers online, but bad because it cost us a ton of money, right. like a ton of money. <laughs> and so we needed to figure out a way. And so the, the attack, um, while it was targeted and malicious uh, against us, and yeah, I mean, we're a tiny company. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I can't really talk about that. But it, it's silly that that happened. But it was good because it helped us iterate and, and make our software better because we've now been able to create ways that blocks these kind of attacks. Um, and yeah, it costs us money, but our software is now better and more resilient because we're able to um, deal with these things in a much better way. So if it happens again in the future, like I was talking to Jack, and this probably started about 
five, six weeks ago from you and I recording this. Um, the attack happened again, I think three weeks ago. And the only reason we knew is because I asked Jack on Monday morning, because the attacks always seem to happen on a Saturday. And I asked Jack, I'm like, hey, did we get attacked on the weekend? And he was like, I don't know, let me check. He's <laughs> like, yeah, I guess we did. But because we had set up all of these protections and firewalls and all sorts of other nerdy stuff, um, it, we didn't even notice. So we were able to, to make our software better. And that, that's part of um, existing on the internet is having to deal with stuff like that. And, and yeah, it cost us a bunch of money, but it's also why it's good and healthy for a business to have margins, right? Like we, we were able to ab- absorb the costs and not dip into the red uh, in dealing with something unforeseen. So yeah, it, it was, it, it sucked that it happened, but we're, we're better off for it. And it ended up becoming uh, a positive because our software is more resilient. And it's still just Jack and I doing it. So we hired a we hired a, a specialist. It's like the A team at AWS. I think they're called um, Shield. AWS Shield. It totally I feel sounds like, like they a, should be called the A team. Yeah, I feel like I, it would be better. I think that there's that. I think it, they're kind of going for that superhero vibe, <laughs> and that was just something we didn't need to hire a, a person full time to help us with this. We just needed to hire the best consultants on the planet who deal with this on a regular basis to help us through that. Um, so yeah, that, that's how we, that's how we dealt with that. And you actually, you did the same kind of strategy with your legal team too, right? You have a legal consultant that you work with? Yeah, we have a, a privacy officer, Ree, who is um, the smartest person we know uh, who deals with um, European privacy law. Because Jack, for some reason, Jack and I, that's not something we ever studied um, being in the <laughs> no? software business. No. So yeah, we we have her on, on contract um, and she has, she's, yeah, the smartest person about GDPR we've ever met, but she also has, she's not a lawyer, so she has legal resources that she can bring in. So we kind of, we kind of scale and shrink our team as needed with, um, consultants and we, we would rather pay somebody as a consultant who is the best in the business or the best in their field of expertise for help for a little bit than have to think about hiring somebody and dealing with um, like all of the things that come with having full-time employees. It's not something that um, we need at this moment. It could change. Like We're not against it in the future, but we need to, we would rather solve problems in the best way than just throw um, growth or, or more at the problem. Hmm. So talk to me a little bit about digital privacy as a whole, where you see kind of the, the industry or the concept going, you know, what do you, what do you think the biggest challenges to digital privacy right now? And what should we either as business owners or just as people kind of be looking out for? Yeah. I mean, three years ago, I would have said awareness. Right, like it was just the tinfoil hatters like myself who cared about <laughs> this stuff, <laughs> but it, it has become part of um, the normal conversation now, which I, which I think is amazing. I think it's great that people that that it, it's in the news every time Facebook and Google and whatever other big tech company CEO has to go in front of Congress to testify about breaking uh, breaking social contracts with, with that with all of us and breaking our trust through um, abusing privacy. So I think that now that we're all aware 
of it. That, that's a great thing. That's a great first step. I think that the next thing, um, and like you said at the beginning, uh, if, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So I think we need to think about all of the things we trade for free software right? Because we trade data for free software. We trade our privacy for free software. We trade protection for free software. And is it is it worth it? I mean, maybe it is sometimes, but I definitely don't think always. So I think thinking about, okay, well, maybe I, maybe I want to market my business somewhere other than Facebook, or maybe I want to have... Um, website analytics that aren't part of big tech, right? Like Google doesn't offer analytics for free because they're nice and they like you. (laughs) (laughs) That would be cool. But I mean, they're a multi-billion dollar company. They, They offer free products because they make more money off of us in other ways that they just don't tell us. Right. Like I I would rather. And so I think we've kind of got and this is kind of why the Internet exploded is because there's all this free software. We can do pretty much everything for free. But it's like, okay, well, what has that cost us? Right. And I think the the more people who are kind of coming to that conclusion and and kind of realizing why digital privacy is important, um, the, the better. And then seeing that there are other options, like whether it's Fathom, whether it's something else, whether it's like fast mail instead of uh, Gmail for email, I think is important. And then on the, on the consumer side of things, I think finding ways to, to hide or obfuscate our, our personal details when we're using the internet uh, is really good. So things like using, and, and these things luckily have become so much easier nowadays. So things like using a VPN, super straightforward. Things like using a, a password manager, like one password or last password, whatever it is, doesn't matter, but like a password manager, super easy. Um, using a privacy focused browser, i.e. not Chrome, <laughs> like <laughs> Brave or Firefox, even Safari is better. Using um, ad blockers, so all of these things can help um, kind of hide your data as best as possible from big tech trying to make money off of all of us without telling us. Like, and, and this is, I guess, kind of the thing. Like, Jack and I aren't anti-capitalism. We, we love making money. We love growth. We love having a healthy business. But we'd rather just be upfront about how we make money, right? It's just like, you want to use our software, you pay us for it. That's a, yeah, it's a very straightforward transaction <laughs> instead of trying of, to figure out yes. how the company is profiting yeah. off of you. Because if you're not paying for it, there's a way they're making money still. They still exist as a company. Yeah. But trying to think, figure out, you know, what the what their business model is and how exactly and what data they're exposing of yours in order to make the money that they're making can sometimes be really difficult to figure out. Yeah, but I think I think the main thing there is if you're having trouble figuring out how this company makes money, you should be worried about that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like if you don't see the revenue model and revenue models should be pretty straightforward for for businesses, if you can't see that pretty quickly, then be scared and think about, well maybe there's an alternative to this. Hmm. Is there anything you think we should talk about, um, either with regard to marketing or privacy-focused marketing or just privacy in general, that we haven't talked about yet that you think we should? Um, I don't think so. I, you've asked some some really great questions and, and brought up, I think, all the, the key points that I, that I would want to talk about. So, yeah, I think that's good. Can we talk? Uh, I just thought of another one. Um, sure. So can we talk a little bit about um, kind of the dynamic between wanting data for a feedback loop Mm 
and uh not wanting to track people's data. So I'm thinking specifically with regards to like email newsletters. You know, we all want data mm -hmm. to say that was good content, that wasn't good content, people paid attention to that or not. And when we decide to um, lean in the direction of privacy, we inherently give up a little bit of that data that could be valuable, actionable data. So. I know you ended up before you kind of killed the newsletter, you weren't tracking in that, but can you talk me through a little bit of kind of the decision process you went through to yeah. decide that you could give up that level of data? Yeah. So for my newsletter, it was me sending out, I guess, plain text articles. I didn't need to see what people clicked on or, or see where they were in the world. That, that wasn't a, that wasn't a data point that helped my business make money, right? And if it is, then maybe you collect that. And, and I think it comes down to awareness and consent, right? So I don't think tracking is wrong if somebody knows about it and consents to it, right? Like if mm -hmm. Google told, told us all of the ways that they collected data about us or Facebook told us all the ways they collected data about us and then use that to make money, they would be a, they would be much less evil, <laughs> in my opinion. If they <laughs> they'd then, probably be a lot less popular. <laughs> yes. Well, they they might be less profitable too, but you never know. Also. Um. So if if they did that, that would be a good first step. Um. The the awareness, and then if they gave us a way to opt out of that, and maybe it's well, if you don't want targeted ads, you have to pay us a buck a month, or something like that. Like if I didn't see another ad on Twitter. I would pay for Twitter. It's just like I pay for YouTube because I don't want to see ads and videos. I watch a, I watch a ton of e-bike videos <laughs> on YouTube <laughs> and I pay that. I would, I would rather pay that. And I know they're still tracking me. Like I'm not naive in that way, but it's just like if there was an option, that would be good. And if there was awareness, that would be good as well. So for my newsletter, um, I, I decided that th these metrics weren't useful. And I think this is kind of what GDPR um, is trying to get at is these annoying cookie notices is they just want people to be aware of how they are being tracked on the internet, right? And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why Fathom exists is because if we don't, if we don't show any of this information on our dashboard, we're GDPR compliant without consent because there, we're not showing all of the stuff about individuals across the internet um, on our dashboard. So I think, but I do think those cookie notices, if you are, are useful because I think people just want to be aware of um, what data they're giving up. And then if there is a way to opt out or an option to opt out of that, then, then that can be good. So none of these things are wrong. I don't think targeted advertising is wrong or, or email newsletters that have tra that have the spy pixels in them are wrong. I just think that, well, maybe it's worth noting that, that, that you do that or that you collect information um, and, and put that in like the footer of your newsletter. I think that would be, if I hadn't turned them off, that's probably what I would have done. It said, hey, there's a tracking pixel in this newsletter. I use that data to do X. Mm. And that's it. And if you don't like it, turn off images. Or if you don't like it, use Fastmail, who proxies. And I just learned this because we interviewed um, Fastmail on our podcast. Fastmail proxies all remote images and loads them on their servers. So if I open an email in Fastmail, um, that the, the sender of the email doesn't see where I am in Canada 
they just see that it was loaded on a server. I don't know wherever their servers are for fast mail. Or if I use, hey, uh, Basecamp's email, answer to email, those things are also proxied. So I think, yeah, the, the awareness and, and giving people uh, an option to opt in to these things instead of having um, really obscure ways to opt out, if it's even possible. Mm. No, I like that. Uh, all right. I think that's a great place to go ahead and wrap up on. So where can our listeners find, uh, I know not you, but Fathom, <laughs> if they want to connect and learn more about Fathom or read more about privacy stuff? Exactly. So I don't really exist on the internet anymore, <laughs> but Fathom luckily does. So our website is usefathom.com. Our Twitter is at Use Fathom. Our podcast above board is, if you're listening to this podcast, just look for above board and add that as well to your, your podcast feed. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorites. Thank you very much. Yeah, Jack and I have fun. We try to, we try to make it entertaining. So It is. And even, <laughs> even though it's about software, uh, ostensibly, it's, I think, much more universal than just two two guys talking about their software company <laughs> yeah i think jack and i would um we have a flair for the dramatic which i think is <laughs> kind of fun um so yeah our, our website our twitter um and our podcast and if you search for i guess fathom analytics on youtube um yeah you probably find a couple of videos I've, I've got to make some more but i think there's a few videos uh right now awesome well thank you so much for coming and talking to me about this um it was really fun yeah, thanks, Susan. I appreciate it. And this is, yeah, this is great. For me, the impact of the switch from Google Analytics to Fathom was pretty easy with really no downside. I realized that I didn't need to see anyone's personally identifiable information in order to have actionable data about what pages were performing well on my site or what my website traffic looked like. With Fathom, I ended up with a really easy to interpret data picture and I got all the information I needed. I realized I wasn't actually using any of that extra stuff that Google Analytics was providing. So this switch was, at least for me, a no-brainer. But that was only because I was already in this experiment. I knew I wanted to prioritize privacy, and I knew Fathom existed because I happened to be on Pulse Newsletter, so I was aware of this kind of alternative option. But for a lot of people, having Google Analytics installed on your site is the default. There's an integration and a place for you to plug in that tracking code in just about every app you use in your business, which creates this underlying assumption that you should be tracking everyone, even if you never look at the data that the tracking code produces. But whether or not you use the data you're collecting, you can be damn sure that Google sure does. Now, you heard Paul and I mention in the interview that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And this is one of those instances. And I am very happy to pay a pretty minimal cost to stop being a product and stop my clients and potential customers from unknowingly being a product through me. And as a bonus, I get to work with this company where I really believe in what they're doing and I get to support that. So part of my motivation in producing this series is to help you realize that there are alternative options to these default assumptions we have about how data tracking and marketing your business are supposed to work. I'm a big believer that we need to examine the default decisions we make in our business. And when it comes to digital privacy, data tracking, and marketing strategies, we've been told that there's this playbook we're supposed to follow. But hopefully this episode and the ones that are coming up can help provide some other options so you can make an informed choice for yourself 
your clients, and your business. Next week, we're diving into a different aspect of privacy and security. I'm talking to Jessica Robinson about cybersecurity and what we need to be thinking about as business owners to keep us safe from data breaches. So hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Runbeck.